Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 114 for October 18th, 2007. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. Time for Security Now, ladies and gentlemen. Our podcast of the year in science and technology with your host, <laughs> Steve Gibson, <laughs> Mr. Fanfare, Steve Gibson. Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. Somebody saw the, I guess, a streaming uh, copy of me accepting the award uh, oh, at the find it. expo. And, and they wrote a note saying, hey, it was really great to see you accepting the award. And, you know, I did, you know, my acceptance was tantamount to simply thanking our listeners for for making it happen since uh, they, they did. Happen. They so did, yeah. Deep. Yeah. <clears throat> well, we're uh, we're glad that uh, you won, and I always I'm gonna from now on for the next 52 shows we're gonna acknowledge that. Use <laughs> 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 it while we can. Uh, today it's a Q and A episode, which means we've got some great questions uh, from you, the listeners, and some really great from Steve. really good questions oh, this good. week. I th- I think this is going to be an exceptionally good Q and A. I had some time to do some research into some great questions that were asked, and. Uh, so uh, this is, I think, I'm excited about this week's episode. Excellent. Um, let's get to any errata from previous weeks uh, before we get going here. Anything? I have one big piece of errata. A, a surprising number of people wrote to ask, not only in the, the, the feedback form, and I wanted to remind people about grc.com slash feedback, where they're able to communicate to us their wishes and desires and show ideas and questions and comments and and great ideas. In fact, we have a, the the last Q and A number twelve is this week's winner of the Brilliant Idea <laughs> Award. We're going to do one of those every week now, huh? <laughs> well, whenever there is one, you know, we don't always have brilliant ones, but this one was just like, oh yes, of oh, course, of course. Um, but uh, so I just wanted to remind people of grc.com slash feedback. Good. Um, the thing that we were reminded of, I was reminded of, not only here, but even in our news groups, people were saying, hey, Steve, you promised to track down that question that a listener had. I think it was in episode 112, which would have been, of course, two weeks ago, where someone said that in trying to download the virtual debit card software from PayPal, the link was broken for them, and they later tracked it down to the fact that they were using a host's file to block their computer's access to DoubleClick. Oh, yeah, and why was DoubleClick involved in the transaction at all? Exactly. Well, and so people said, hey, you said you were going to check back on that and let us know. Okay, well, I did. And it's as bad oh, as no. it could possibly oh, be. Oh, no. Oh, no. How, now, wh- who, did you, who did you go to to find this out? I just went to the website and did a little skullduggery. 
um, on the page on our show notes page for this week's episode for episode 114, which is going to be chock full of links and goodies of all kinds. I've got a picture showing where I'm hovering my cursor over the download button and you can see the URL, which Firefox shows in the status line at the bottom of the screen that, you know, this is actually a double click.net URL. Wow. So, and I want to explain the implications of this in detail. So we're going to do a whole show about it. Number 117 uh, is going to be PayPal and DoubleClick. I suppose be, we should try to get somebody from PayPal to uh, come on and explain themselves. We can try. I mean, I've tried to use PayPal's uh, tech support or product support in the past, and it's, it's virtually non-existent. Well, we can approach and, them as the press. Uh, we'll we'll do whatever we can, yeah, but yeah, um, yeah I'll so make a note of that. I'll see if we can get somebody from PayPal because I want to give them a fair yeah. fair chance to respond. Eh, we certainly should hear their side yeah. because I want to explain what it means when you you redirect a web sur- a web browser through another site because of of the I want to describe exactly the way information flows and. I mean, really, how frankly unconscionable this is. You know, I'm I'm noticing it also. For example, when I click on on links, sometimes in Google, I get a almost blank page with a little little you a little link up in the upper left hand corner that says, "Click on this if you're seeing this." And it's because I'm running with browser security cranked up and. A redirect through, I don't remember what the link is. It's like Mediaplex or something. You know, it's another tracking service, and I'm being tracked when I'm when I'm clicking on just a search link, not even an ads link or double, you know, or, or Google ads or anything. It's just a search link, and it's like, ah, oh, well, yeah, we just wanted to keep track of you, Steve. So anyway, I want to I really talk about this in detail because it's something which is certainly – a privacy concern and yeah, no really, really troublesome when a company that you have an account relationship with, like PayPal, has is apparently, you know, allowing. Well, anyway, we'll go into it in episode one seventeen, and uh, we'll make a concerted effort to see if we can get someone from PayPal to defend themselves. Yeah, wow, that's really a surprise. Um, I I want to mention before uh, uh, there's another news story that I think is quite interesting. Just broke today, and you probably haven't had time to see it. But Apple has announced that they're going to allow third-party applications on the iPhone. Ah, oh, good. Hallelujah. In February. But here's the reason I'm mentioning on security now. Uh, Steve Jobs has a, uh, a post on apple.com slash hot news. He says it's going to take till February because we're to, they're going to release an SDK, which means that anybody will be allowed to develop anyway. I don't know how Apple will certify. And I guess that's what he's going to address here because he says we're trying to do two diametrically opposed things at once provide an advanced and open platform to developers while at the same time protect iPhone users from viruses, malware, privacy attacks, etc. This is no easy task. He says some claim that viruses and malware are not a problem on mobile phones. This is simply not true. There have been serious viruses on other mobile phones already, including some that silently spread from phone to phone over the cell network. As our phones become more powerful, these malicious programs will become more dangerous 
And uh, he says the iPhone is a highly visible target. And so he wants to make sure. I think that that's, you know, in retrospect, I've been disappointed with how slowly Apple has put third-party apps on the iPhone. I mean, it's something we expect. Well, now there were ar- there were already some hacks yeah. that, that were out. <laughs> but you saw Apple's response, which was to delete the, uh, to make them impossible to put third-party apps on, delete any third-party apps you'd installed. And if you'd gone in farther and unlocked your phone, they bricked it. <clears throat> this this says basically, you know, there'll be a, a legitimate channel for putting third-party apps on the phone. You know, I, I'm not an iPhone user because I'm over on the the Verizon um, Sprint side with the CDMA link because I like to use the EVDO uh, for for wireless broadband, which is about four times, no, oh, yeah. maybe even more, more like five times faster than the um, uh, Edge network that uh that at&t and and singular uh yeah. offer but um, also i suspect because you like your third-party apps well uh, uh i do have an ipod touch because i just had to ha- i had to play around with that cool yeah. touch screen interface and you know the latest ipod and I'm, I'm a media guy so i like to to create you know video clips and 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 carry them around the problem is there's no possible there's no possibility for me to enter my WPA key. Oh yeah, good point. Through, the, I mean, I would like to also be able to use it as a as a cute little you know Wi-Fi web browser. Now you can on, you can on the iPhone. You can use WPA. Well, no, I mean iPod Touch has it. Oh, okay. but I can't enter my key. Have you seen oh, my? Oh, that's key? right, because there's no uh, keyboard on the iTouch. Well, no, there's there's there a keyboard. Is. Oh, yeah. It's just too long for you to enter accurately. Oh, yeah, because they show stars the whole time. (laughs) Exactly. They show stars. One mistake in 64 characters. And they they want you to put it in twice. Yeah. No, you're right. And there's there's no no cut and paste. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a good point. You know, so I'm I'm hoping that if there's a if if some third party apps come out, there'll be something like a notepad or something that'll give me some some copy and paste functionality on the iPod Touch. Then I'd be able somehow, you know, to like dock it and right. and move move the key from from iTunes in a notepad into the iPhone, then do a cut copy and paste to get it into my WPA because you know, I use one of my own passwords from, you know, GRC.com slash passwords. And there's no way I could type that in. Well, you know, that's, not that's o- frankly why I use simpler, shorter passwords. <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, and I just I'm just pissed off. It's like that's wrong that right. you can't. There's no way to like. In, there's just no way to shoehorn a long string into that iPod Touch at the moment. But because surely just- you approve of his notion. And by the way, when he says third-party apps on the iPhone, I, t- I touch too. Does include the iTouch. Yay. Okay, good. Um, but surely you approve of his point of view that uh, we want to make sure it's secure. And I think that, in a way, that's admirable uh, that they're, they're going to do it f- before, you know, up front, as opposed to the way everybody else does it now, which is as an afterthought security. Well, I mean, he would have to, he, they, a- Apple, would have to come up with something like a Java environment where where the apps are running in a completely sandboxed environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, he's talking about a, a a a medium that viruses and malware would love to exploit. I mean, right. you know, connectivity is the way malware and viruses thrive. Right. And and yeah, I mean, it's it's what he's talking about doing is is extremely difficult. So it's a good thing to say and I'm glad they have this goal, but I think, you know, people who install third-party apps mm. 
are going to have to, you know, let, let, let's hope that it's that they design it in such a way that there's all kind of hoops you have to jump through to manually install the app so that things like worms are not able to slip in, you know, through some back door. You know what you know, the, he points out in the same release? He says, look, the way Nokia is doing it is they you can only install an app if it's digitally signed and approved, you know, with a real sign with a real certification. I don't know if it's approved by Nokia, but digitally signed demonstrably something like that and that makes that would be a doable let me see let me read what he says Nokia, yeah, except that you just go to the hong kong post office and get a well tra- they could be traced back to a known developer is what he's saying oh, okay so that would mean that developers would have to register with apple in order to have the right to right. sign code that would then be um obviously uh revocable if they didn't you know do the right thing and so forth so you know people would grumble that that was creating a you know a bar to entry but you know yes i'm sorry it's gonna have to be you know something's gonna have to be done in order to keep this from just getting out of control my my suspicion is he's setting it up that they'll sell it in the itunes store only and you'll have to go through Apple's certification process to get into the iTunes store. Ah, well, okay. I, I'll buy a Notepad that way. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I think that's in a way that's a that's a good solution. Anything in order to get my WPA key and <laughs> my into my iPod. Duly touch. noted. We need Steve's WPA key. <laughs> uh, before we uh, go on, do you have any Spinrite email? Any? I do. I have fan. I have mail? A, a fun short story from a guy named Stuart Leithwood. Who, who said, you're going to love this, exclamation point, in, in quotes. And he said, I work as a network support professional for a small government organization. Mm. He says, because of our size, every penny is precious. We purchased Spinrite to repair some PC hard drives, which it did famously. But the story I want to relate to you is more unusual. In fact, the reason I chose this is we were recently, I guess it was like in, it was two weeks ago, we, we, I was answering a question about RAID and Spinrite. And he says, we have 1.4 terabyte snap server network attached storage device we use for one for one site backups. Someone unplugged it uh. and the RAID array became corrupt and the disks unreadable. So I decided, what the heck, let's spin right, take a crack at them. I installed the IDE drives that needed repair in a PC and ran spin right on the corrupt ones. It took hours, and one took days to process. He says, it fixed each one in turn, and I was able to rebuild the RAID array perfectly. Thanks for saving our bacon. Spinrite more than paid for itself. Wow. So, Spinrite on a RAID array. Yep. (laughs) That just proves you can do it. Yep, exactly. Real quickly, before we get into the meat of the matter, which is uh, your questions, let's uh, thank our friends at Nerds On Site for their continued support for this podcast they've really uh I, you know they, i think when they started which is now almost a year ago they said well I'll try it for a month you know we, i'll give it a shot well here we are a year later and uh, and we think it's a marriage made in heaven um the folks at nerds on site uh it's hard for me to exactly describe what it is it's not a franchise it's more like a guild a group of uh people who are in the it business helping each other and they're looking for more nerds to service their customers. So if you're a PC or a Mac expert, if you have specialties in Cisco, Oracle, Microsoft, fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, sales trainers, security experts, antivirus gurus, any of that, 
uh, especially if you're one of those types who likes to tear, tear apart and troubleshoot your own system in your uh, spare time. You know, you really love this stuff. Nerds on Site wants to hear from you. Go to, go to IWantToBeANerd.com. You can register for a nerds-only meeting in your area today and find out exactly how it works. Nerds are still independent contractors. You still have your business for yourself, but not by yourself. That's the idea. You focus on what you love to do, not the burdens of the paperwork and all of that stuff. Plus, they help you build skills. For instance, Nerds on Site, uh, as we've mentioned before, uh, is a SpinRight provider. They also... Uh, are now an authorized Astaro solution provider, so you can get uh, training through Nerds on Site, certified engineer training for Astaro and other security gateways. Um, There's got all sorts of additional training available to you. So not only do you build your business, you build your skills. I want to be a nerd.com in eight countries, Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, Singapore. I want to be a nerd.com should be your first place to go. To grow your business, thanks to Nerds on Site for supporting Security Now. So let's see. I have uh, in my I have in my hand, Mister Gibson, <laughs> twelve fantastic questions. Are you ready to answer them? Hey, they are good ones. This All week. right, yep. you picked them, so <laughs> you, you ought to know. <laughs> we should say that I don't pick these questions. I'm not trying to stump Steve. These are, and nor is Steve trying to, uh, m- you know, softball himself. These are questions that, that are interesting that seem to be commonly asked. And, well, and and they are, and many of them send me off to go do some research. I mean, right. you know, yeah. I, there are questions I don't have answers to, so I go, oh, that's really interesting. I did, had never heard about that, that and that's, off I go. That's why I love doing the uh, podcast, and I love doing the radio show. This is the best way I've found to keep up to date on uh, on what's going on. Mike Vanna of Carolina, Rhode Island. <clears throat> I don't think there's a Carolina in Rhode Island, but... but that's where he said he was. I so. believe you. Well, maybe there is. I grew up there. I th- you know, it's a small state. It's not like there's hidden towns. But anyway, <laughs> wonders about UPnP and MS Home Server. That's the new Microsoft uh, Home Server. Uh, I've been listening since episode one, and I, like many, can't get enough, says Mike. I recently started listening to Windows Weekly. I'm enjoying that as well. My question stems from a recent episode of Windows Weekly, episode 31. But he, but he wants to ask you, because UPnP comes up so often... In this episode, uh, Paul and I were talking about Microsoft's home server uh, and uh, and that it now uses UPnP. In fact, to work, it needs UPnP turn, turned on in the router. In fact, I've seen, uh, Steve, just parenthetically, a number of articles uh, saying, uh, is Windows home server really secure? Are we going to let, you know, <laughs> this seems a little risky. Oh yeah. Uh, Mike says I'll cave into this. Uh, I know Microsoft has has their had their way about them that it either is their way or the hard way. But couldn't you un uh, couldn't you enable a P, uh, UPnP while the server is configuring what it needs and turn it back off once something in the router is set via UPnP? Is it not permanent even if the router restarts and power cycles? Okay, this is actually a, a general question, not just having to do with WHS here. Right. Although, um, well, okay. There, there, there's a couple things. First of all, one of the most distressing things about universal plug and play for router control um, is that most user interfaces do not show any of the configuration which has been done through the universal plug and play interface. To to give our listeners a little bit of background, although I harp on this all the time because this just scares me to death, and I'll just bet you we're waiting to see, you know, some real abuse of this pop up. The idea is that it, the the router presents a server to the internal network, 
And the way Universal Plug and Play Protocol is designed, it's possible for any computer on the local area network to send a broadcast out saying, hey there, um, I know about Universal Plug and Play. Who wants to play? And all the devices that that are supporting Universal Plug and Play get the IP address of the machine that sent out this broadcast question, and they say, hey, I know about Universal Plug and Play. Hey, I know you about, about Universal Plug and Play. And so essentially, it allows the network to discover itself. It's, it's handy because, you know, one of these days, Sears is going to be offering a Universal Plug and Play refrigerator, and you plug it into your network or just, you know, raise the antenna in the back, and it'll be part of your network. And so the concept is that it's a it's a self-configuring network. My concern is when your neighbor is able to hack into your refrigerator. Um, <laughs> Put some malware on it. <laughs> that can be a problem because universal plug and play at in the first incantation, which is all we have so far, although I have heard that there is a second generation yeah, on the way that too. apparently yeah. adds security. Yeah. But in, in the first incantation, there is none. So there is no way to prevent malware from having access to, in this case, literally the entire configuration of your router. It can do anything it wants to with your router, with universal plug-and-play turned on. And because the configuration change is made, like creating static port mappings back from the outside into your network, do not show up in the user interface. You can you can be a a responsible administrator of your router. Look to see on those those administrative web pages that the router publishes what's going on and see nothing even while there is static port mappings that have been created by the universal plug-and-play interface coming back into your network. So it's a concern. Now, the good news is, and the reason I wanted to specifically address this question relative to, to the Microsoft Home Server, is in fact, it only needs, that is Microsoft's Home Server, only needs three ports mapped through the router and in fact may be able to get away with only two that is that it is a web server so it needs port 80 and port 443 mapped through it also needs what they call a remote desktop proxy port now remote desktop as we've talked about in the past normally runs over port 3389 but in this case the home server runs a proxy for that, meaning that it's it's receiving these these requests from the outside and then is relaying them internally to within your network to other machines, for example, or the home server itself that may have, in fact, has to have remote desktop running on port 3389, but the proxy runs on 4125. So you do not need universal plug-and-play enabled at all. And again, you know, for all the reasons I just finished talking about, I would strongly recommend that people don't enable universal plug and play. However, you can manually administer that port mapping. Simply send ports 80, 443, and 4125 to the IP of your home server running on your network, and you're good to go. With the strong caveat that here, once again, we are exposing Microsoft servers, that is Microsoft services, 
to the public Internet. And I don't think there's ever been a Microsoft service that didn't have horrible security <laughs> vulnerabilities, at least, at least initially. I mean, even their web servers, they, you know, their commercial web servers, IIS, had horrible problems with them. And all of the services that Microsoft has traditionally exposed through Windows has had problems, which is why only after we got the firewall running in, in Windows Service Pack 2 of XP, did all these problems quiet down because now they were those services were hidden behind a firewall. Well, what we have to do, and if we're going to expose this home server to make it available on the Internet, is break that rule and make those services available. So, you know, it's something to be aware of. But at least you don't have to have universal plug-and-play enabled if you do want to use Windows Home Server. And and to, to, did you? I'm, I'm sorry if I missed it, but did you answer the question with with UPnP? If you enable it during configuration, can you then disable it and and have all those ports now be open that UPnP is opening, or does disabling it turn off all the ports that it's configured? Um, disabling well again this does vary with routers because they're, they're unfortunately one of the things that Mark Thompson my my buddy over at Analog X, X, X found out remember he had sixty routers that he was messing around <laughs> one, with recently. one which was renamed itself to Nadine or something but that's, a, that's <laughs> Venus a, Venus that's another story yes um, uh, he has discovered a huge variation in the behavior of universal plug-and-play implementations. I see, I see. Part of it is that the, it, that it's not a mature um, – well, there hasn't been time to mature the implementations. It, it, it's a new spec. A lot of routers rushed into having, oh, yes, we support universal plug-and-play right. too. But So there's a huge variation in behavior. So it's impossible to say this is what universal plug-and-play does, and specifically things like what if I disable it once some mappings have been made, do they remain? Yeah. That's that's nowhere in the spec. Nothing talks about how the re- router should even behave in that okay. case. So it's unknown. What, it's exactly. It's undefined. And so so you could try it and f- see how it works. Um, what will typically happen, however, is you disable the interface, and those mappings will remain until you reboot or recycle the power on the router, in which case then they are lost yeah. because they're not typically written in, into the firmware in the same way that your your static configuration right. changes are. Although they I are should in- point out that some routers like my D-Link, you can save the configuration and probably that would be the way to do it is save it and then when you reboot, you could reload the configuration. Can you can you save the universal plug and play configuration? Well, I, I mean, it says you could save, I presume it would save port forwarding that you'd done and that kind of thing. I, I, that's a good question. I don't yeah, know. I, I think probably not oh, actually, it be, okay. because it is it is regarded as sort of a as a software sort of a dynamic. You know, the application opens the ports while it needs it. One one would hope, for example, that when you shut down Windows Home Server, server, it would know to turn that forwarding off. Oh yeah, right. So so that it, uh, <laughs> so that it closes the router down again. Yeah, again, it's sure. <laughs> it, it's just a it's just a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I this is the part problem. What's happening is. Uh, people are being asked to do things that sysadmins did only a few years ago. You're running a network. All of a sudden, you're doing very high-end network configuration stuff. And a sysadmin would lock it down and do it all by hand. But in order to make this stuff user-friendly so that any any nitwit can have a home server, they're doing things like plug-and-play, universal plug-and-play. But then, of course, that's not the safe way to do it. 
Yep. So I see the I see the issue. They want to make it accessible, but there are some things maybe that shouldn't be accessible. Well, and it would be one thing if Microsoft had a perfect security record. Yeah. Dot dot dot. <laughs> I have to say they're getting better. You, you, we haven't had any major issues with with Vista in a year because now. the firewall is always on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that re- no, no one even knows if Vista services are vulnerable because there's no point in poking at them because they're hidden behind a firewall. I mean it it really is the firewall. Boy, that was the simple. moment the moment that got turned on by default, everything changed. It was so simple. Yeah. <sighs> Something we should have done years ago. <laughs> I asked them to. I but, know. Uh, Justin Van Viersen from Perth in Western Australia wonders about Super nodes in Skype. I'm presuming that when you forward a port through your NAT router to Skype, you are opening up Skype to become a super node. Is this correct? Okay. What Skype super nodes are is it's the way Skype deals with its inability with some NAT routers to establish a direct connection. Um, for example, I, I have a very bizarro uh, non-standard NAT facility at my end of our connection leo so i've had to establish a a static port forwarding through my nat router which is exactly what we were just talking about in the case of windows home um, network server in order for you and i to create a, a direct link between our machines so that we get this really nice high quality skype connection um without that what can happen is that we, we know that NAT routers are able to initiate connections outbound. That's the whole point. In order for Skype to work, we need you know two people, both behind a NAT router, need some way to link through their NAT routers. When that's not possible, Skype finds some other Skype user somewhere out on the Internet and says, okay, we're going to make you a relay that is a so-called super node, and in, in, in which case, both of these users behind NAT routers that are unable to establish a direct connection, they both call out and establish connections to this third party, to this so-called super node, and it acts as the relay for their traffic. Well, many people consider this objectionable, and I certainly don't blame them. It was one of the very controversial and annoying things about using Skype. Well, Skype um, is a peer-to-peer technology, and that's how it does it. I mean... Exactly. The good news is, because of concerns, ever since version 3.0, uh, the Windows version of Skype has a registry editable setting that disables its use as a supernode. So it is, it is possible to tell your Windows version of Skype, under no circumstances are you allowed to be a traffic relay. Um, now, also- now, let me ask you a question, because uh, it's my understanding that, as you said, supernodes are really used to uh, provide NAT traversal. In order to be a supernode, you have to be on an open IP, a public IP. You can't be behind a router, right? Um, that's probably the case, and, and I think that's why uh, Justin's question was... It doesn't really if, come up if you don't even have to do this registry uh, modification if you have a router, right? Um, if you're behind a router, then uh, I'm trying to remember whether... It's my understanding, if, uh, and you know what, Skype is not very clear about this, but it's my understanding that you have to be on an open IP address, unprotected IP address. You can't yeah, be behind that. I don't... I'm not sure that's the case, because... You, you, because 
it, it, because many NAT routers do behave themselves. And as long as the – and, you know, we've talked about NAT traversal before. There is some behavior in a NAT router where the, it's, it's NATing is predictable. Right. And it, so it could certainly be the case that even somebody – even a super node behind or a version of Skype behind a well-behaving, easily traversable NAT router – it could accept incoming connections from people behind two non-NAT compatible routers. But remember, they're looking. Uh, what Skype, the Skype network looks for is a, it's a small set of supernodes. They're not. Uh, they're not. Not everybody becomes a supernode. And in, according to the research I've read, generally it's somebody who has a lot of bandwidth. Although it doesn't take a lot of bandwidth to be a supernode, surprisingly, because you're you're really you're not transmitting the data, right? You're just providing the handshake. No, you're you're relaying all of the actual conversation data. Because because you know that that that's what you have to do. So the Skype server itself is able to perform NAT traversal handshaking in order to negotiate a connection I between see. well-behaving NAT routers. You're actually the 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 supernode, and see that's why the connection quality drops so badly. Is suddenly your jitter goes up, your your latency goes up because all of your actual conversation traffic is being relayed through the supernode, and it can be a lot of bandwidth. But remember, they're they're using a lot of supernodes to distribute this. Yes. So you know you're you're not you're not taking a whole call necessarily. The other thing, um, the other thing, anecdotally, I've heard is that if you disable your the setting for starting Skype up at boot, that also disqualifies you oh. as a supernode. Which I think because they want you to be on Skype all the time for it to work. It, well, exactly. They, they, they want to assume they, they, want, they want to know that your Skype is going to be generally available for super node status. So, again, I don't know this for sure, but anecdotally, the reports of people that have looked at this closely say that if you just turn off the auto start in Skype, that'll do the job, too. But certainly if you're under Windows and you're using a Skype from version 3.0 on, it's possible to, dis- to disable that. I've got the information on this show notes for this episode. So anybody who, I mean, and I would recommend, unless you enjoy the idea of, of having you know other conversations relayed through your bandwidth, uh, you may very well want to disable, especially our listeners who are, who are privacy and security aware, may want to disable their handling of, of other people's conversations. I just sent you a link to a, um, a study of Skype. See, Skype, apparently Skype doesn't really document this. They don't want anybody to know how their, their secret sauce. Uh, a study done by a guy at Google, a couple of guys at Google, and a guy at Cornell, basically an experimental study of how uh, uh, Skype works. And they talk a little bit about bandwidth consumption as a supernode and so forth. It's a little dated. It's from 2005. But I think it probably gives you a good idea. So no, nobody knows, so you just kind of have to test it. And they did a long-term test of how Skype worked. Well, and one of the differences that, that between Google and Skype is that Google will itself relay its users' traffic, and there is no notion of of with Google Talk of of like a a third party super node right. being asked to carry other people's traffic. Right. Google server uh, does that itself. Well, but of as, course, you know, as these guys point out, Skype the Skype founders came from Kazaa. That was their previous uh, product. Exactly. They understand peer to peer, and Skype was really designed from the ground up to be a peer to peer voice over internet. Yeah, and, and it's free. That's why it works. 
That's why yep. it works so well. We now uh, what we do at your recommendations use a dedicated port. Will that prohibit us going through a supernode? Will it just give us a direct connection? Well, and see, that's exactly what Justin was asking. He says when you forward a port through right. a NAT router, uh, the way you, the, the the way you do that is you say I'm going to forward this port from the outside in, and then you tell Skype to listen on that specific port. Right. Um, and so that would clearly enable it to be a super node because it would mean that anybody now could connect public. to it. Right. Yes. And and since you've configured your 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 Skype client to operate in this fashion, it's certainly able to disclose its configuration to Skype Central and open you up for being a super node. So hmm. I, again, I don't know that that's the case. So maybe um, I should turn that off. Well, the other thing, Leo, is I'm betting – well, first of all, I don't run Skype um, at startup. No, so do I, I. I turn it I'm, off unless we're yes, doing this. Yes, and so if, if it's true – and this, this was a – there was a, a study done by the guys at University of uh, Waterloo – in uh, in Canada, that said uh, the uh, CS department did did some real looking at this, and they said, you know, when when Skype is not running on startup, it does not adopt supernode status. Right. So you know, so that's an easy thing to do. And again, in Windows, we've got a registry tweak that will disable it for sure. Um, but cer- certainly, it's the case, and this is why Justin asked the question that if you did do static port mapping. Anybody could connect to you incoming, and it would sure seem like it would qualify you otherwise for supernode status. Here's a quote from 2003 from uh, Niklas Zenstrom, one of the principals of uh, behind Skype and uh, also of Kazaa. Uh, he said, "Without being too technical, each Skype client is always connected to a supernode. That surprises me. Any Skype client could become a supernode. The supernode is acting as a hub. Supernodes are always on routable open IP addresses." When a call is set up, the established TCP connection with the supernode is used to signal that a call is coming. Depending on the firewall status of the client, the data stream is set up either as UDP, if the firewall allows, or in worst cases, as outgoing TCP, which is almost always allowed. And we've talked about why UDP is better than TCP for this kind of stuff. If both clients are only allowed to do outgoing TCP calls, they're routed through another peer. I don't know if that says anything or not. Yeah, they don't talk a, little, a lot about how it works. That's the funny well, thing. Well, and right off the bat, the first statement the guy made is wrong because you and I, I mean, I've looked at our traffic. I've I've run a packet sniffer on our connection and there is there's you no know, super there, node there. There is absolutely There might nothing, have been for you know? signaling though. No, he said he's saying remember every VoIP call has two parts. There's the data carriage, but there's also the the ring, the signal. And they might I use suppose, a super node except, for signaling. Except that Skype Central is the one that, that, that manages presence, as it's called. You know, does the right. presence management for, right. for, for all their stuff. we knew that stuff. because when Skype was down, so were we. Exactly. It's yeah. not like lots of little super nodes kept the job going. Right. So eh, maybe, maybe, it, maybe, he was, maybe he was being disingenuous. Yeah. Finn, located somewhere in Sweden, asks about Amazon's S3 service and Jungle Disk. S3 is amazing. Um, this is, that's, that's Leo. Saying that, I finally decided to check out some off-site backup solutions for documents, pictures, etc. Amazon's S3 seemed like a good, well-known option for long-term storage. I chose Jungle Disk as a front-end GUI and backup software. Security-wise, it all seems pretty good. The authentication to Amazon uses SSL, and when backing up, all files are encrypted on the fly with AES 256-bit encryption. But the question one has to ask, is this really safe? Is an end-to-end connection... In an end-to-end connection manner, I frankly... 
Don't care as long as the files are stored okay, but the issue for me is trust. What's your take on trusting a company with your precious documents in the long run? Well, first of all, Leo, tell us about Amazon S3. It's a really neat service, a storage service that Amazon uh, inaugurated a couple of years ago. It's just pennies uh, a gigabyte. It's very affordable. You can find out about it by going to Amazon.com slash S3. S3 stands for Simple Storage Service. Uh, it was originally, I think, intended for developers, but uh, anybody can use it with the right interface. I use it for storing exactly how uh, Finn is using it as a backup uh, solution. 15 cents per gigabyte per month. Data transfer is 10 cents per gigabyte. Um, but but uh, it goes down the more you use it, obviously. Um, there are a lot of people developing uh, for it. And, you know, a lot of developers use it. For instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, Pounce. Leah Culver, who de- developed the Great Pounce system, which is kind of a Twitter-style microblog, uses uh, S3 for all her database storage. It's reliable. It's fast because it's Amazon. They've got a lot of servers running. It's asynchronous, um, and it's relatively cheap for that kind of storage. So, um, I, you know, and then Jungle Disk is just a GUI interface for it. Well, actually, Jungle Disk uh, has something in addition to that that, that I like. Um, for, first of all, everything you just said, I completely agree with. Um, I, uh, I, we've got a, an episode scheduled before the end of the year on, on this issue, on Amazon S3 and oh, Jungle Disk. Oh, great. Because I, because I want to really understand, and I don't yet, from looking at the data that I've seen, um, if it qualifies as, as what I call TNO, you know, that's one of my favorite new Mac, uh, acronyms. TNO stands for Trust No One. Right. Um, there are differing reports from Amazon's tech support about whether or not they can perform lost key recovery. Uh... So the question is, I mean, I, I, I absolutely love the idea of very inexpensive off-site storage. And in fact, if I determine, one of the reasons I want to do the research and share it with our listeners is if I determine that this is true TNO, then I will absolutely sign up and subscribe. I mean, the pricing seems very reasonable. Um, I would I would love this as a means for like moving all of my source code and project work oh, yeah. and, you know, basically the crown jewels off-site. The other thing you get is you get because it's centralized and it's internet based, then you know, if I'm roaming around with my laptop, I have access to that archive which is centrally located and it's distributed and backed up and secure, you know, and all the good things you want in a in a in a robust offsite backup. But I want to absolutely know that, you know, no one can be sniffing on my data. Not only do I need a secure connection, which I'm sure is is part of this. I know that already. That I've verified. But I want to know that that Amazon, under no circumstances, has the keys to decrypt the data that they're storing for me. This needs to be absolutely opaque from their standpoint, so well, that there so that there's no way for them to perform key recovery. I need to take responsibility for making sure I don't lose my keys, and if I do, I got to be up the creek. Well, here's my question: Is Amazon doing the encryption or Jungle Disk? If if Jungle Disk, which is not from Amazon, as it's a third party client, encrypts the data first, then uploads it. 
Um, and I and that's my impression of how Jungle Disk works. Um, using a, an AWS, it says, "Oh, I see. You can use a you can use an AWS secret key, which Amazon would know, or using your custom encryption key." Yeah, and we need to understand what that's about. There, there's some dialogue in their forums where they talk about. I mean, which is encouraging. Where they talk about if you were to change your key, then then you wouldn't be able to read any data that you had stored before. Well, just like any but, encryption key, right? Well, but they have this notion, which I really like, of previous keys. So apparently you're able to use, you're able to update your key and you move the current key into an old key repository. And, it, and if it sees that it's unable to decrypt the data stored with your current key, it checks your previous keys and sees whether any of them are able to read the data. So, I mean, it, it's really positive looking. But the, the, the one thing I wanted to mention about Jungle Disk, just for, so our listeners know, um, although, again, I, I haven't yet vetted them. I need to do this, and I'm going to, is that it creates – and I should also mention it's only $20 at the moment – and it's available in all three major platforms, Windows, Mac, and Linux. They even provide you with open source, their own open source that allows you to browse and download your software. I mean, they're, they're really opening the kimono and saying, look, this is how we're doing this. We're hiding nothing. The, but the coolest feature from my standpoint is it looks like a local drive. Right, and and what that means is I'm able to still use something like uh, the, my own favorite um, uh, backup program. It's, it's called Fileback PC, and what I like about it is that it's incredibly sophisticated in terms of of the rules I give it in terms of like versioning. I can tell it that I want 25 back copies of of source files. That is a- a- anything dot ASM, you know, for assembly language, uh, but I want no more than five of them kept per hour and no more than 10 a day. And this thing manages all that for me. So if literally, if, if, if it turns out that Amazon's S3 service coupled with this very reasonable, reasonably priced jungle disk works um, and is secure, then I could literally tell Fileback PC that the you know the Q drive is where it's supposed to maintain right. this archive, and all of this would be done offsite for me transparently. This, so this is done using WebDAV, and frankly, there are many WebDAV interfaces to S3. So you, if you wanted to roll your own using TrueCrypt and WebDAV, it wouldn't be such a difficult thing to do either. So right. if you don't trust JungleDisk, do it yourself. I mean, Jungle Disk isn't open source, so you, you can't be sure that what they're doing with that key, I guess. Well, they really seem like good guys. They do seem, and, uh, everybody's and, using it now. Yep. Yeah. But again, you know, that's, Jungle Disk isn't required for S3. S3 is just a service. Jungle Disk is an interfa- commercial interface to that service, but you can roll your own. Absolutely. Well, I, and, exactly. And in fact, S3 is sort of a UI-less service. It, right. it is a, it's a back-end data storage facility. Although apparently there is some key management that they do, I just I need to understand what it all is, and we're gonna we're gonna do a show to describe it in detail, right. so we'll know um, how secure it can be. You have to get to use S three. You have to get an Amazon Web Services key, um, and that's a simple application process. And if you just use that, obviously they can recover that. You know, so that's that's like a password, basically. Right. 
Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, if they're, they're, I'm looking at a, a page, uh, elasticate.com, where they have free tools for Amazon S3, and it's a couple of pages worth. There's a ton of good choices. It's just the jungle disk is so easy. <laughs> That's why people well, like jungle Well, disk. I mean, I just love the idea that it looks like a virtual drive. There right. may be other solutions that do, um, but, but, but but again, the, the guy that asked the question, Finn, That's what uh, we to know. in Sweden, he aimed me in that direction. I was right. like, hey, you know, this would be very cool because it looks like a virtual drive, which means my existing backup tool could be told not only keep a copy on my on my central raid array and keep a copy you know remotely on on our level three servers where i do now but also stick it off you know in amazon as long as it's really encrypted and they can't get to it i'm really comfortable doing that brad fitzpatrick wrote and i use this actually for our web server a um, perl script that encrypts and then backs up automatically as a as a cron job uh, 2s3 and that's what nice. i use for my backup and that's really a great i mean that's if you're running a web server that's the kind of thing you want just kind of happens every day automatically nice yeah very cool you do have to make sure you delete <laughs> you, you delete some of the older backups or you could really fill it up fast chris noble in uh, wellington new zealand wonders about a specific authentication scheme are you ready in episode uh-huh. 113 yes yes you are ready I'm ready. I don't. I don't want to go too far unless you're ready. I was born ready, Leo. <laughs> I heard that in episode 113. You mentioned the risks of having a keylogger on one of your staff members' laptops. We were talking about remote authentication and uh, how to how to do that right. Uh, thus, making a password login via the keyboard potentially risky. What about a solution uh, like that used by F5 networks for their FirePass remote access solution? It's a little graphical virtual keyboard on a login page. You don't use your keyboard keyboard you click the the letters on the screen enter a username and password the key thing is no pun intended the keyboard randomly jumps around the screen after each mouse click oh this sounds so annoying so you're chasing it around (laughs) oh jesus it's annoying so that not even a mouse logger can log the pixel position of the click on the screen for use again later this sounds like a good way to do it in a way this is providing a one-time unique entry process it's a good point for something the user knows as opposed to the same entry process via password text in the form a field in a form. I'm interested in your comments on uh, this form of logging in, since it doesn't use a keyboard, is immune to keyloggers, right? And is also used by the company I work for to gain remote access. How interesting. Well, well that's secure. It's, it's an it's an interesting idea. Um, and I wanted to bring it up because, you know, this relates to the topic we're right in the middle of discussing, discussing which we opened last week and we're going to finish with next week. And that is the, this, this, the simple but straightforward and very secure approach I developed for, for uh, allowing uh, GRC employees to have secure roaming access to GRC. And uh, some of the questions at the end of this show are specifically about that, sort of as a lead-in to next week. But the problem here, first of all, this is, this is better than, for example, an on-screen keyboard that did not jump around, but – the 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 test is having somebody know absolutely everything about what you're doing that is it does sound like the password that the person is clicking on is the same every time and that's the weakness of this system even though the keyboard's jumping around the presumption is i mean the 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 high bar that we set is an attacker would have full information of 
what you're doing. And that would mean they would be able to see the screen and figure out what it was you were clicking on and then reverse engineer the password so that they'd be able to click on the same password, even though it would be occurring in different locations on the screen. So, yes, this is better, certainly, than having a static on-screen keyboard. And obviously, someone is concerned about the mouse click positions being recorded. You know, that's what this is designed to bypass. But it still suffers from the weakness that the same password text is being entered each time. And that weakness is something that can be avoided. And that's the topic for next week's Security Uh Now episode. Uh Aha! Ian Chain in London was shocked, shocked, I tell you, to learn of the importance of the Firefox master password. Did we talk about that? I don't think so. He said, I had had no idea. I use it. Now I'm worried. I use it. I had no idea about this potential problem with Firefox. You should tell people about it. He uh, now quotes a page at ghacks.net. Make sure you set a master password, it says, in Firefox. I presume you have read this page and have something to say about it, Mr. Indeed, I have, <laughs> yes. my friend. Um, so the master out- pa- let me just mention, the master password at Firefox I use because Firefox will remember passwords for you. And you can say when you're in the, on that page where you turn that on, use a master password. And unless you enter the master password, nobody can then log into those pages without it. Actually, it's it's a little bit worse than that, and that was the uh, what Ian wanted to bring up, oh. and the reason I wanted to share it with our listeners okay. is that if to make sure that people are aware that if you use Firefox's, you know, remember this password or username and password right. for the site feature, right? If you use that, anyone can come to your copy of Firefox and click on Tools and then Options. And then click on show passwords oh, okay. <laughs> and show passwords again. Right. You are then prompted with an are you sure dialog box. If you click let yes, it then shows you in the clear the website URL, <laughs> your username and password right there in the dialog box for anyone to look at. Well, there you go. And, of course, he makes the point that if you if you reveal all your passwords to someone or that is inadvertently do so, you know, they could look at, Oh, look, it's always the same. Right. Shame on you. Or it's like, Oh, look, here's how they're coming up with passwords. I mean, they could reverse engineer your password scheme. If you had taken our advice from, I don't know, episode two of security. Now, whenever it was, we were way back then talking about a personal password policy um, or procedure or, or whatever protocol. Um, in order to figure this out. So I thought it was worth bringing up what what Ian was saying was that it is for for the privacy of your passwords, you really need to set that master password on Firefox or anyone who comes along can see what your passwords are. And in fact, I'm looking at it right now and I see, uh, because I turn it on, I had to enter it twice before I could see the passwords. And that's good. In fact, uh, it's a little bit of a pain. You might be tempted to turn it off because uh, every time you launch Firefox, you have to enter that password. Uh, but I think that's a good thing. So that's good to know. All right. Good thing to mention. I should mention well, that. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, I think that um, it is 
It is exactly for that reason. The fact that you you launch Firefox, you've given Firefox the ability to log you into websites. Right. You definitely want Firefox to to harass you <laughs> for the password <laughs> right. to prove that it's you sitting in front of it. Yeah, because I do. I mean, I let it log into everything, all my secure sites, my yep. banking, everything. But it doesn't know it's you. <clears throat> Not unless I, I I tell it. Yep. Nathan in Huntsville, Alabama, wonders about online password storage. I've been very interested in a password management solution for a while now. I even started building my own server-side program so that I could access my passwords everywhere. <laughs> oh boy! But instead of reinventing the wheel, I thought I'd look around the tubes, see what I could find. I found something pretty interesting. It's called Passlet, P-A-S-S-L-E-T dot com. As far as I can tell, all the data between the browser and server is encrypted, as well as the data being stored. As a user, I'm encrypting that data on my end and sending it to them. The only problem I could see would be a hack into the server and change a Java code. I'm, I'm just wondering what uh, your thoughts on this might be. Passlet, is it safe? Well, it's an interesting idea. Um, it is. It looks to me like these guys have done a good job. They they have an FAQ where they where they understand the risks. The one concern is that they're using um, JavaScript running in the browser in order to perform the encryption. Um, you know, it's like, well, you know, his concern was could someone hack their server to change the JavaScript so that the code you're running essentially on your client is no longer doing what they intended it to be doing? And it's like, yes, that's definitely a vulnerability. So, you know, th- but uh, but otherwise... You know, they're they're encrypting on on your browser, on your client, so that all of their storage is encrypted and it's 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 encrypted through the connection, although it also insists on being um, an SSL secured connection. So that looks pretty strong. Um, You know, these guys look like they're doing a good good job. Now, one thing that they're not doing um, is they're not protecting that I could see from the possibility of a keystroke logger right. on people's machines. And, and for what it's worth, Leo, I actually, in the, in the email that I read from our listeners, I hear a surprising number of confessions from people who have found keystroke loggers on their machines. It, it wow. seems to me this really is a problem. Well, it's one of the things, one of the three or four things spyware often does or adware yeah. or whatever malware often does so malware yes yeah. hmm so you know so you know, th- there are a number of of web-based services that are doing this kind of work um i uh, we're going to talk about it next week have a solution for the keystroke logger problem oh. and in fact i've already written to the passlet guys and said hey guys um i've got this solved I'm making all the code public, and the whole system is public. Maybe you want to take a look at it as a way of further strengthening the login to your facility, because of course, you know, anyone who then logs in has access to all of the keys to the kingdom, and you want to make sure that that, you know, any time we we consolidate all of our information in one place, just like using Firefox to store our our web. Um, page login we're consolidating in all that in one place we really have to make sure that they you know the, the entry to that is as secure as it can be you know i should ask you as a follow-on i use a thing uh from um uh, zarate.org z-a-r-a-t-e.org called super gen pass and what is it? it's a javascript bookmark uh that sits on your browser toolbar 
and it does a hash of a master password, which you give it. And you can either, either give it to it and have it store it, or for more security, you can type it in each time. And then it will hash together your master password with the site's domain name to, nice. cre- to create a unique password for that site. Yep. And it's a good password. It's long. It's got all sorts of goobly gobbly good in it. <laughs> I, w- yep, I wouldn't try to remember it. We know that's what a good password is. But the beauty of it is you don't have to remember it or even store it anywhere because you can generate it again as long as you remember your master password. Yep. I think that's a very good solution, Leo. Yeah. I use that for not for my banking, but I use that for um, semi, you know, sites like the New York Times or whatever. The, right. Uh, yeah. And that seems to work pretty well. If you Google Super Gen Pass, one word, and you can find that easily. Nathan and uh, oh, uh, I already did that one. That's uh, the uh, Passlet one. Let's go on to Carrie Merritt. Who wonders about VME encryption? Have you guys heard of VME, Victory Marvelous Encryption? <laughs> I just made that up. I would, I would just like your opinion on it. Their site is meganet, M-E-G-A-N-E-T dot com. They claim a million bit key using a matrix created by a secret file. And then the program can be set to use a configuration file to change the type of matrix that is created. If you could, would you give us a quick thumbs up or thumbs down on it? I have it. And the configuration tool, they have offered all kinds of stuff like a million dollars to anyone who breaks it. I always get worried when somebody offers a million dollars to anybody who breaks something. Okay. Makes me well, nervous. Meganet. So I go over to www.meganet.com, and they've got seals and certificates and from the you know various government agencies and you know all kinds of FIPS qualifications and certifications and all and all this I go okay what you know and one of them was a mention about a patent so I thought oh that sounds interesting so I click on that link and go over to um, a patent site uh, filed almost exactly 10 years ago on October 24th in 97 so in a couple of weeks it'll be 10 years ago and the patent was granted on April 17th of 2001 would have been maybe more fitting if it was granted on April 1st. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's an honest-to-God patent. It's patent number 6219421. And the, the patent, the abstract at the beginning of the patent, it, this is worth sharing with our listeners, says, a data security method and apparatus that provides an exceptional degree of security at low computational cost. The data security arrangement differs from known data security measures in several fundamental aspects. Most notably, the content of the message is not sent with the encrypted data. Rather, the encrypted data consists of pointers to locations within a virtual matrix. Oh, how weird. A, a large, arbitrarily large, continuously changing array of values. The encryption technique is therefore referred to as virtual matrix encryption. That's the VME. There you go. Furthermore, the data security arrangement uses a very large key of 1 million bits or more, which creates a level of security much higher than any other existing method. The key is not transferred, but is instead created from a file of any size that is available on both the computer used to send a secure message and a computer used to receive a secure message. The term virtual key cryptographic is used herein to refer to techniques in which a key is recreated at a remote location from an electronic file 
without any transmission of the key itself. The, the file may be a system file, a file downloaded from the Internet, etc. A smaller transaction-specific key, e.g. a 2048-bit key, is sent end-to-end and is used in conjunction with a very large key to avoid a security hazard in instances where the same file is used repeatedly to create the very large key. So, you know, decoding this, it sounds like they you you refer to some third-party file somewhere. From that file, you somehow create this virtual matrix. And then the act of encrypting is finding strings in this virtual matrix and then you give you only send pointers to the strings rather than pieces of the file and that's how this thing works like a code book but it's generated a, a new each time kind of yes now now the problem is we've we don't need new encryption and i mean that's sort of where i immediately fall back to is yeah, well, now wait a minute um you know this problem has been solved we have solve the encryption problem in an absolutely robust way but you know and i just sort of had this weird sort of queasy feeling about you know this doesn't sound like it's it really makes that much sense i mean it sounds like there's if you use real cryptography this thing would not stand up at all well so i did a little bit of web searching and not much in fact i put virtual matrix encryption into google and the first link that came up was by um, our friend Bruce Schneier, who is actually a cryptographer, who is the author of of Blowfish, a you know a still state of the art, robust, never has been a weakness found in it cipher. He wrote in February of eighteenth of two thousand three the following, which is just a, a perfect synopsis of of sort of this notion of. Let's just have non-cryptographers invent virtual matrix encryption. He says in uh, so in February of uh, 18th of 2003 he says back in 1999 so 4 years before this I wrote an essay about cryptographic snake oil and the common warning signs Meganet's virtual matrix encryption parens VME was a shining example it's now four years later, and they're still around peddling the same pseudo-mathematical nonsense, albeit with a more professional-looking website. I get at least one query a month about these guys, and recently they convinced a reporter to write an article that echoes their nonsensical claims. It's time to doghouse these bozos once and for all. First, an aside. If you're a new reader or someone who doesn't know about cryptography, this is going to seem harsh. You might think, how does he know that this is nonsense? If it's so bad, why can't he break it? That's actually backwards. In the world of cryptography, we assume something is broken until we have evidence to the contrary. And I mean evidence, not proof. Everything Meganet writes clearly indicates that they haven't the faintest idea about how modern cryptography works. It's as if you went to a doctor who talked about bloodletting and humors and magical healing properties of pyramids. Sure, it's possible that he's right, but you're going to switch doctors. (laughs) Two essays of mine, one on snake oil and the other on amateur cipher designers, 
will help put this into context. And he goes on. So that's our answer to merit uh, to to carry merit. We're, we're, who, you're not, it's, he's not saying it doesn't work. He's just saying it's not needed. There's, well, there's good public key cryptography out there now that that works. Well, I mean, and there's public key, there's symmetric key. I mean, my position is this problem has been solved. Right. The last thing, you know, we have Rheindahl, we have have RSA, all of this stuff is now in the public domain. Their patents have expired as opposed to just having been issued uh, in 2001. Um, And they solved the problem in in a way that absolutely makes sense. So... So it's very likely that this technology can be cracked because it's not based on sound crypto science and technology. It's based on some guy saying, oh, let's see, I'm going to use a million bit key. Ooh, that's a lot more bits than 128. So it must be more secure. Not, no, not necessarily. Right, right. Yeah. All right. So just it's unnecessary. Yeah, and 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 but the, the, no, Bruce the, makes the, a good point that you know amateur. It's not like you need it, and why should you trust an amateur cryptographer? Uh, you know what, what's not known is is how reliable this alternate system is, really. Oh, and well, and I love crypto. And the last thing I'm going to do is go and you know invent my own bit scrambling routine. It's right. like no, thank you. That's been that That's problem been has been solved. Right. Although I have to say, Neil Stevenson did uh, invent a very clever crypto scheme using a deck of cards in Cryptonomicon. I think Bruce uh, pa- may have had something to do with it or was involved in it or uh, passed judgment on it. I think I remember that he was consulted. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's fun to do it. It's a great hobby. But if you're going to trust your business data to it, it might be good to use well-known, established technologies. Uh, I think it's even I would I would phrase that more strongly, Leo. Okay. (laughs) Ryan Sullivan asks a, quote, random question from New York. I'm trying to write a pin number generating program. I'm having a slight issue when it comes to generating a completely random number. I know that software cannot be completely random. The issue really is that when I run the program, the first number to be generated is always the same. (laughs) He's new to programming, I think. The second is always the same. While the numbers are random, they come up in the same random order every time. (laughs) <laughs> it's called pseudo random. I'm currently using the random function, the programming language. I've spent- I, I, actually, I, I, I have to interrupt. I would say I would call that not random. Yeah, not, that would be exactly not random. Yeah. I've spent a few hours trying different combinations of adding or multiplying two or more random numbers together. I cannot seem to figure out how to at least have the numbers come up in a different random order each time. Is there, he needs to read his programming book a little better. Is there some mathematical equation or algorithm that can give me a somewhat random outcome? Or at least more random than I'm currently getting. <laughs> well, I there think everybody co- who learns to program does this once. I'm not laughing. Oh, sure, at you. absolutely. The, that, that's the case. Now, the, the fact is the the pseudo random number generators, which are available in most programming languages, ones like like Ryan is probably seeing, where it's giving in the same sequence of pseudo random numbers, they generally use uh, a, a a technique which is extremely poor which is called linear congruential um, pseudo-random number generation. Essentially, you multiply the current number by some constant, and then you add a different constant to get you the next one. Essentially, this, this generates a sequence of numbers 
which is really low in entropy because, again, you're multiplying by something and you're adding something. It's just not going to give you. Really? Um, that's, ex- that's how they're generating? That's, that's, all, that's, that's not all random at all. That's, that's all they do. Now, the good news is there's a function in most of these languages, and I'm sure you're aware of, Leo, called randomize, right. which you can call once at the beginning of your program, and it will generally pick a random seed. Well, I mean, that, that's what it does. It prevents this problem of, of your program being entirely deterministic in the sequence of, quote, random numbers it generates. However, as it happens... I just finished writing an extremely good source of extremely random numbers as part of the solution to this this roaming authentication problem, which I'll be talking about next week. And I'm making all of the code freely available on GRC. So, Ryan, if you listen to this, if you hear this, and you're willing to wait one week, um, you can... Uh, just get this code from me, call it from your program, and believe me, you will never get the same number twice. Usually uh, there's a seed to the random number generator that your programming language comes with. You seed it first. And if you choose something kind of random to do that... Well, for example, you, the, uh, you could ask for a high-resolution time of day yeah, from your ticks, system. The ticks. Exactly, and, and and use that to start things off. The but pro- you'll get a random first number, but the problem is the sequence will not be random after exactly. that. Exactly, you yeah. will you will start with at a different point in basically in a in a relatively short loop that this multiply and add the, this so called linear congruential algorithm gives. Most languages just do that because they're really That's not they crypt- cryptographically random. Right. But but again, I've got some some free code I'm making available because I had to solve the same problem myself just recently. Um and and it generates extremely good random numbers. In fact, you know, we had the we had the randomness of of the the perfect passwords page tested by some crypto guys and it was way up at the t- at the high end of the scale in a competition with a bunch of other Let's random see. you know high quality random number generators where did you get that and, and algorithm just, how did you how did you come up with that was it out of a book or no i just made it up <laughs> you just said this this should work well no and the, the the beauty is if you have a good cipher you're, a, you're essentially a good cipher like Rheindahl, which is what I used. I used Rheindahl encryption with a 256-bit key, which is the longest key it's able to give. If, By definition, if you put anything in one end, like just a counter, one, two, three, four, five, into one side of a good cipher, what comes out is absolutely pseudo-random. I mean, it is highly random, hmm. so that you are unable to predict What's going to come out next, even if what goes in is absolutely as predictable as a counter? Isn't that interesting? And that's what I did, and it works. So, uh, Ryan, uh, it sounds like he's probably learning to program, and that's uh, something that uh, don't feel bad. Every Everybody does the first time. Hey, I've been there, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have no idea how you'd write a real random number generator. I'm, I'm really interested to see how we do this next time. This will be the next episode? Yep, next can't, week. Can't wait. An anonymous listener worries about replying uh, uh, about worries about replying upon browser cookie security. Let me explain. Oh, relying upon. Relying. Sorry. Okay, that makes relying more upon. sense. All right. I have a question pertaining to the last episode of Security Now. That was uh, one thirteen, I believe. Any cookie set on a system by 
uh, legitimatewebserverA.com, let's say, is supposed to be displayed back to that company and only to that company. In other words, any illegitimatewebserverx.com has no way to read that cookie. Well, what happens if at some point the browser mechanism is somewhat faulty, maybe a bug strikes, and the cookie does get read by some otherwise unauthorized website? In other words, theoretically, a browser is not going to offer a cookie back to a non-matching domain. What happens, though, if some site by, say, using JavaScript is somehow able to read the browser cookie anyway? Is is that something to worry about? It's a good question. Of course, it's a function of what the cookie stores. Um, This was triggered by my discussion last week of of this idea of a of a master enabling permanent cookie and then a a second cookie which would be a session only cookie that that would be given to a roaming user after they had securely authenticated themselves to the server um but in general cookies have no meaning to other web servers that is most cookies are Although they don't have to be, are what's called an opaque token. There's some random-looking gibberish, probably something that's been encrypted, which is stored as an as an ASCII text string in the cookie as the cookie's data. So that this opaque token has meaning only to the issuing site when it receives it back. So if some malicious website did have access to the cookie. And again, this is something which certainly browsers are working, are, are struggling to avoid because cookies have become such an intrinsic part of web security these days. You, you certainly hope that a browser is not going to indiscriminately disclose cookies to right. non-authorized domains. But even if it, if it did happen that it was disclosed, if you actually look at the contents of most of your cookies – you'll see that they just look like, you know, absolute gibberish that would have no meaning whatsoever to a site that didn't know how to decrypt it or interpret what data was stored in the cookie. So it's a pretty unlikely uh, combination of flaws. First, the browser has to be broken, then the cookie has to be something that makes sense and and has to turn out to be something useful instead of the last date of your visit. Well, yes, and, for example, a web server that receives it, it's just going to ignore it. Right. It's going to say, wait a minute, I'd this is not a that. cookie I understand. It's not, it's not like it's a smart web server or right. a malicious web server that no, you know, knows it's going to be Ooh. you know, leaking cookies from some, some broken browser right. that's going to ever have been to some other website to have acquired a cookie that would be of interest to it. Right. So, again, it's like you know, way out there. It would be pretty unlikely. Yeah. Hey, before we get to our last three questions, I want to mention that this podcast is brought to you. Did I say podcast? Shocking, shocking. This netcast, this show, Security Now, is brought to you by the good folks at Astaro. The fabulous Astaro Security Gateway is all you need to protect your enterprise in all so many ways. It's the it's the best of breed open source and commercial software covering every aspect of security you get. Email security, anti-spam, anti-phishing, dual virus protection for email, transparent encryption too. I really love this using um, PGP or SMIME. Your your desktops don't even know that they're using encryption and signing. It just happens automatically. Uh, you also get uh, web filtering for content and antivirus for the web, anti-spyware, and of course control over things like instant messaging and peer-to-peer. All of this built into one little box about the size of a router. And, of course, you get your what you'd expect, the network protection, a, a real uh, uh, stateful inspection firewall. You get remote access and VPN. You get intrusion protection. 
This is a great device, and it scales very well. I have to say, uh, they have this unique brand of active, active clustering that enables the load distribution for as many as 10 Astaro Security Gateways. So as your enterprise scales, so will your gateways. You don't have to add load balancers or anything. You just plug in more gateways, and boom, you've got it. I just think this is so great. Version 7 is out now. You can try it for free. Get a free demo in your business. You know, try it in your real environment by calling 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-427-8276. Or visit astaro.com slash security now. And home users can download it for free. And uh, there's no longer a charge for the subscriptions. So you get the uh, antivirus updates, all the... the, uh, Updates, uh, updates on all the software. I mean, it really is a great way to take a beige box and turn it into an Astaro security gateway. A- that's for non-commercial users, of course. ASTARO.com. We do thank Astaro for their support. Now on to our next question, also about cookies. Uh, I've been listening to your Security Now episode, number 113, and a couple of questions about the permanent cookie you're talking about. First of all, is this cookie placed inside the TB trusted computer's web browser, or is it placed somewhere else on the computer? If it's placed inside the browser, how to, how do you make sure it doesn't get deleted by accident or by the user, say, when he's cleaning the browser's cache or other browsing traces? And if it's not placed in the browser but someone else in the computer, where would that be? And how would the server be able to locate and see that cookie? Is this entire cookie system designed to work only with Internet Explorer, or is it is it going to work with Opera and Firefox or Safari? Tell me, Steve. <laughs> he's really worried. Well, the idea was... That I I wanted to I wanted to use this permanent cookie to potentially enable a machine to connect to GRC when it's not at one of the of the known secure IP networks. That is, you know, the the browser the the server at GRC knows my own network and it knows uh, the IP of of Sue's. NAT router and the IP of Greg's NAT router. And those NAT routers tend, even though they're using DHCP, tend to hold those IP static unless they unplug their NAT router or reboot it or leave it offline for some period of time. So, you know, so that's been that's been the way we've authenticated so far. If their IP changes, then you know, they simply let me know. They send me a piece of email that has their new IP in their email headers, and I, I add that or I, I change the old IP in the registry, and they're, they're back up and running and up to speed. So the idea is only if their laptop as, is at one of those IPs is it able to receive this master cookie. So to the first question, if the um, – if that master cookie were deleted, they clean the browser's cache, delete their cookies. Well, all they have to do is reconnect their laptop back to their home network, which will, will give it the public IP that's been authorized. And the moment they try to use our management interface, the server will see that, they, that their browser has not given them the master cookie back either saying this machine is authentic this is either authorized or not authorized and so the, the they get an intercept screen saying wait a minute please let me know whether this machine should be authorized for roaming authentication whenever it's not at one of these authorized IPs and um and it is just a standard browser cookie it's 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 not stored elsewhere in the machine it's just there in the browser it's it's meant as 
as one of several sort of interlocking requirements for for them to be prompted for their to 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 solve this puzzle or this secret something which is not going to be uh easily or even possibly uh cracked by somebody with full information about their logon and that's what we're going to talk about next week okay Victor, lurking somewhere in the UK, had a question about roaming, Roman authentication. <laughs> that was our last episode. Right. You t- <laughs> I just love that name. You talked a lot about your new roaming authentication, but there are a couple of things that occurred to me. If a laptop already has malware, can't this malware just steal your, quote, secret cookie? I mean, after you successfully logged into the system, a thief can use your session cookie and spoof an IP address it's coming from. And if this were all done on a hotel's private Ethernet... He doesn't even need to spoof the IP address because, you know, it all looks like it's coming from the same place. Well, he's certainly he's certainly correct that if let's see, if we were logged in, if, if a thief were on the same network, yeah. then they would be that we would see that they were on the same IP. Yeah. Um, they would have to have malware on the laptop, which was able to recognize what was going on. And get both the static cookie, which authorizes the transaction to create a session cookie, and the session cookie, which would be initiated only when the laptop's user authenticated uniquely each time. Um, And they'd have to then have a way of returning both of those cookies with any transactions and know the the non-public and the well the non-public URL for this back-end management system which is also heavily encrypted and they'd have to be able to do all that over even though we were using SSL connections for the transaction so um so if the user if this attacker were not also on the same Ethernet, there is no way to spoof the IP. Um, I've mentioned, I think it was last week, that that TCP connections are spoof-proof because you have to have this three-way packet transferal in order to establish a connection, and the session cookie does have encrypted into it, that is the contents of the session cookie, the authorized IP that the user was located at when they solved this puzzle that we'll be talking about next week. So it's not possible to spoof it. So if you had malware, if you captured both cookies and you were on the same network so that you saw the same public IP and you knew the non-public cryptographically strong URLs were using, then yes, you could uh, pretend to be uh, one of our users. But it would take all of that in order to make it happen, which essentially means you have to be one of our users. Yeah, that's interesting. But there is a way to do it. I'm actually kind of surprised. Yeah, I mean, there, there is, there, um, there, there, there's this practice now that there's been some discussion of called sidejacking. Right. The idea being that 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 some sites do not maintain a secure connection 
after the user logs on. For example, Google. We've talked about um, Gmail, Google Mail. It will it will make you use a secure connection while you're providing your username and password for logon. But unless you use a secure URL when you go to mail.google.com, it will drop you back to a non-secure connection. The problem is that it continues to maintain state using a cookie, and that cookie is going through the clear. So, for example, in a, in a scenario, in an open Wi-Fi uh, situation, for example, where, where you are not using secure browser connections, it, the practice of sidejacking can occur, where even if they did not get your username and password, because that had been secured by an SSL connection, once you've established that, if the cookie is not flagged as secure, and you drop back to a non-SSL connection, and in fact, in this case, the cookie could not be marked as secure because the server still needs access to the cookie when you're over a non-SSL connection. Somebody could could watch one of your Gmail transactions, every one of which would contain the cookie, and simply masquerade as you. They would they would grab your cookie, start using your cookie, and essentially commandeer your session. And that's mm-hmm. sidejacking, which is a problem for cookie-based state management on um, on secure um, in 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 um, in transactions which are supposed to be secure. It's kind of like a man in the middle, though. Why do they call it sidejacking? Well, because you're not in the middle, you're on the side. You're okay. not actually needing. <laughs> you're not actually needing to to filter and 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 intercept the user's traffic you're able to sniff it and just watch it go by and see oh look this guy's doing gmail on a non you know on port 80 non secure there goes his his the the, the cookie for his gmail session right. i'm going to grab you it you don't intercept and- it you just watch it go by and and sn- and make a copy basically exactly yeah so a man in the middle you'd intercept it and send something else to the server and so, for example, this is the reason why um, the the GRC session management, you know, the, the management interface absolutely never falls away from being over an SSL connection. It will not accept any of this happening unless we have a secure connection with our server, and that's maintained all the time. Right. Brian Pollack of St. Louis, Missouri. Receives the Security Now Brilliant Idea Award for the week. I hope we can do this every time. <laughs> yeah, this was a this he makes a great point. It's simple and it is just it's so neat. I absolutely wanted to share it with our listeners. Thanks for alerting me to the PayPal security key, writes Brian. It makes me feel a lot better about using PayPal. And in answer to the previous questions, you've said to just combine the token value with your password on the first login page. I don't think that's a good idea. He says, as we know, if you do not provide it with the password, PayPal prompts you for it in the next screen, which Generally is how I do it, just because I'm lazy. I use this feature as an extra check to make sure I'm not being fished. If I ever try to log on and am not asked for the token value, I know right away something is potentially wrong. Oh, that's a good point. Isn't that, and that is yeah. the brilliant idea of the week. If it does happen to be a phishing site, I know I've not given them enough to log in, and I can go to PayPal and change my password if necessary. The minor inconvenience this adds to my login is well worth it for the security benefit it provides. As you pointed out, you're safe from phishing in the sense that th- that number is only good for, you know, 30 seconds. So the chances are that even if they get that login, they can't use it. Nevertheless, this will let you know 
you're not on a on a valid site. Well, yeah, I like it from a just a, from a standpoint of feedback. Um, I have been um, I've been putting the the PayPal password and my six digit uh, uh, one time uh, output from my token in all at once. Right. And, you know, and, but I'm also very aware of, of the problem of phishing. I'm always right clicking on the page and checking the properties and checking the certificate chain because I, you know, this is such a potential problem. Although, as you say, Leo, much mitigated once you've got a, a hardware token protecting your login. Still, I just like the idea. I think he makes a very good point that no phishing site would know to prompt your account for your token. They would just ask for your username and password and hope that you're going to give it to them. If they don't prompt you for that, then that raises an immediate flag. And so I just thought that was a very great observation. You know, I uh, um, Bank of America has uh, implemented something finally. They still use that lame site key. <laughs> but uh, they here they, they I think I'm now starting to feel a little bit better about the overall protection because th- what they do is they put a permanent cookie on your machine, kind of like what you do. Uh, and if they don't see that permanent cookie, they say, "Ah, you're logging in from a different machine," or the cookie was deleted or whatever. We're going to sure. need some more information. And normally they ask you uh, a secret question, but and I've turned this feature on. You can also have them send a key to your cell phone. You have to validate the cell phone with them ahead of time in an authenticated you know, session so that they know it's really you. But from now on, if somebody tries to log onto my bank account from a machine that's never logged into that account before and doesn't have that permanent cookie, it'll say, okay, we're going to send the security number to your cell phone, enter it here. So it's very much like that token system, only it's using the cell phone, something I almost always have with me. You can set up multiple phones. So if you have multiple numbers or you, you know, want it, my spouse, for instance, Jennifer has a separate number so she can use it too um i think this is a good solution yes i'm really glad that we're seeing this kind of more robust authentication evolving you know i'm just a a authentication fanatic at this point and i really it's why we've been talking about open id we've talked about the security tokens and it's why next week we're i'm going to share with our listeners the solution i came up with for allowing myself and my employees to securely log in to GRC with so much security that even somebody who had absolutely full knowledge of, of, of that transaction, everything that the user sees and everything that they type in in response, cannot do it again. Woohoo! That's next episode of Security Now. Yay! Don't forget that uh, you can get 16 kilobit versions of this for the bandwidth impaired transcripts for those who like to read along with Steve. Uh, and show notes, and in this case, there is a, a number of links you might want to check out uh, at grc.com slash security. Now, while you're at GRC, don't forget to uh, check out Steve's many free security programs for your download and use, uh, including the Shields Up test that everybody should run when they get a new router or firewall online. And, of course, the fantastic Spinrite, my favorite disk recovery and maintenance utility, a must-have. If you've got a hard drive, you should have Spin right. It's all at grc.com. Steve, next week, the conclusion of our Roman authentication. <laughs> Righto. We'll have a different title for the episode, <laughs> which we will reveal next week. Maybe Persian authentication? I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Leo. Security now.